You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange on this Monday. I'm Kelly Evans. A reversal of fortune. November saw a huge leadership change in the markets as energy and financials broke out, along with silver, copper, and even Bitcoin. Will this pattern continue into year end? We will ask. Plus, a biotech warning. Traders saying vaccine stocks are starting to trade too much like speculative plays as Moderna rallies 121% in a month. We'll look at where it could go from here. And Elon Musk's big warning to workers and one firm getting bullish on Airbnb before it even goes public. That's all coming up this hour. But first to Dom Chu with the state of play in markets. Hi, Dom. Hey, Kelly. The state of play right now is we're actually peaking into positive territory for the S&P 500. So we're kind of near the session highs right now, as you can see, very modestly. I mean, it's flat, but still it's green and not red. It's been rising kind of steadily throughout the course of the morning. The Dow Industrials, again, just about flat, only down 20 points in the Nasdaq. The underperformer only off one quarter of one percent. So a little bit of stability the day after the S&P and the Nasdaq both, of course, hit and closed at record high levels. Taking a look at two key parts of the market we're keeping a close eye on right now. One of them is what's happening with the overall picture for, say, what's happening with semiconductor stocks. Advanced micro devices over the course of a year to day period more than doubled. Lamb research up 63 percent and Xilinx up 51 percent. Each of these stocks gets a gold star next to it because each of these stocks has hit a record high today. And by the way, the big ETF that tracks the semiconductors was six cents shy today at one point of setting another record high. So watch for those semiconductor stocks, a big tell for the overall market. And then if you're looking for that reflation trade, Kelly, you mentioned before kind of the rotations going on, the value orientation. Look at energy names. Oil prices up again, trying to break a three or four day losing streak. Apache. 8% gains, Occidental, 7% gains, 9% for Holly Frontier, and a refiner like Valero up 6% as well. That reflation value orientation element still playing out in the trade today. So we'll see whether or not those energy names, Kelly, continue the near-term trend. Of course, they've been down significantly so far in 2020. I'll send things back over to you, Kel. Yeah, leading the charge today, uh, Dom, that's for sure. Thank you, sir, Dom Chu. Let's turn now to the bond market where the 10-year yield has been jumping up towards 1% this week and check in with Rick Santelli for more on these moves. What do you make of it, Rick? You know, I think uh, there's a lot of wrong positions out there. Think about the logic. The Federal Reserve has done everything to try to keep interest rates low. And they buy $80 billion a month in, ta- in uh, treasuries, $40 billion a month in mortgage-backed securities. So many believe that should rates get higher, they'll just... Buy more. And they've done that in the past. They started out buying a lot more. But there's a rub. If the economy really heats up on the demand side when the vaccine gets distributed, they may not be able to control rates the way they want. Look at a one week of tens. Definitely moving up. And if you zoom back to November, you could see the bogey is a 96 basis point close. That happens to be 174 for 30s. If we close above those levels this week, I think you're definitely going to see 1%. And you'll probably see closer to 2% in a 30-year bond. Finally, uh, we go back to March, and you can see that's the bogey, that 120 closed there right in mid-March. Finally, let's go to foreign exchange. One week of the dollar index, it's like exact opposite of the 10-year yields. It is moving down aggressively. It's moving down against the pound. It's moving down against the euro. It's trying to stabilize against the Chinese yuan. And right now, the dollar index is hovering at fresh 31-month lows, at least based on where it looks like it's going to close right now. Kelly, back to you. Wow. So we're, we're down near 91. It was about 91 and, and change there uh, on, on the dollar index. But Rick, how significant do you think these bond market moves are that we've seen over the past week? Because all of a sudden you have 
the 10-year yield jumping, inflation expectations rebounding. You know, to me, it reads not so much as an inflation trade is coming, but more as, you know, hey, the macro is starting to look better. And so you just wonder if you compare that with the stock market, even if we, you know, if we face some problems here in the near term because everything's so overbought, is the bond market telling you that it's seeing brighter horizons? You see, I don't understand the term overbought anymore, and I'll tell you why. Because on the other side of COVID, when vaccine distributions start, uh, AD as I call it, after distribution, uh, if, I think the Dow could get to 35000 So what's overbought mean? Is it overbought based on fundamentals of the companies it represents? Most likely. But it's never about what companies are doing now. It's about what companies may do in the future. It's about how the demand in some of the old line industries is going to ramp up when we have COVID vaccine and how we're going to keep a large chunk of some of the digital expansion that we've thrown in and all that is going to be a real tough issue for the fed to deal with they want to control rates they don't want them to go too high and slow the economy down but the economy might be firing too hot for a while and that's the rub rick you want to put your stock market trader hat on today we got to get you you know out of the bond pits over to the option pits or something hey i've been saying thirty thousand for five years Ever since about 2015, I said you never want to be short stocks here because the Federal Reserve and all the central banks of the world have pushed everybody into the auditorium of stocks, and they're not going to leave everybody stranded there. Are you kidding? Look at what our governments do now. They want to take care of everybody in every possible way. It's very humane, but it isn't necessarily the way an accountant would run a business. I see, but you're still you're, you're keeping that call uh, intact in for now as a result. Rick, I'm thanks so much. The call. We appreciate I think anybody it. who short stocks is crazy, crazy. <laughs> Rick Santelli in Chicago for us today. Well, let's talk more about the stock market during the huge move we saw in November. We also saw a rotation out of tech and into other sectors: the financials, the industrials, the materials. In fact, financials and industrials were up more than 15% last month. You can see the performance there. Big tech, meanwhile, has been mostly under pressure since early September, with the exception of Alphabet. Apple and Amazon are down about 8% since then. Microsoft down 6%. For more, I'm joined now by John Augustine. He's the chief investment officer at Huntington Private Bank. And Tracy McMillan is head of global asset allocation strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. John, I'll just start with you. You want to just kick off uh, what Rick just said there? I mean, do you think people would be insane to short this market? Uh, Rick did a pretty good job of summing up the markets, Kelly, just just saying. <laughs> so it, in general, though, in summary, yeah. Look, bonds are not offering us enough yield to cover inflation. They're not offering us enough yield right now to produce income for our customers. We are having to go to the stock market for that. We see the stock market offering plenty of dividends, plenty of earnings next year. So, yes, we would agree it's tough to short stocks in this environment. You still got to be incremental around stocks, but it's tough to short stocks here. All right. So, Tracy, I'll ask you, you know, if for people who are saying, well, you know, I'm a little nervous about some of the weakness in big cap tech and that sort of thing. I mean, do you think the market kind of um, coalesces and can move through uh, this period where we might see adjustments in some of the high flying names? Um, or do you have to kind of take the chips off the table and, and wait and see what happens over the next couple of weeks here? 
So we do think the market can move through here. In fact, the broadening and the recent rotation is probably a positive sign. Uh, in fact, you want different leadership because that's what drives a bull market forward. So uh, we're still favorable information technology. We also like consumer discretionary communication services, and we've recently upgraded materials and industrials. Okay. John, what about you? We haven't talked tactically. I mean, would you, are you saying to people just stick with the market, you know, in a very broad way or uh, do they need to be careful or more strategic about what sectors to have exposure to? So we are, we are broadening out. We've done that twice this year. We've rebalanced twice. We've broadened out twice this year. Small caps, we would say, are the next point of confirmation. As, as Marcy talked about with the broadening stock market, they're about 5% from their all-time high, which was in 2018. In the sector space, what our equity team told us this morning is they are very benchmark aware. So they're staying pretty close to their sector weightings. They're looking to see the earnings growth next year. Next year, in our view, our equity team is going to be about earnings growing into stock prices. So January will be an interesting month for stocks. But you're sticking with names like Apple and uh, Microsoft yeah. for some of your yeah. top equity strategies? Okay. Stay in, stay All right, Tracy, then we'll give you the last. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you, Tracy, the last word here. Um, where do you think it, people should be positioned? I mean, is it kind of broadly in the reopening sectors? Does it need to be in some of the, these more specific names? And should they look for buying opportunities if tech and other stay-at-home names correct? Yes, yeah, so we would say look for buying opportunities, but it's it's really interesting. Um, November was such a strong month, and we looked back at other very strong months in history. In fact, um, it's the 10th strongest since World War II. And when we look at those other periods, what we see six months out and 12 months out is an uh, average return of 13% and 15% respectively. So it's very possible that we could see additional uh, positive returns from here, especially if we get a strong holiday season and if we get a, a stimulus package like the market's looking forward to. All right. John and Tracy, thank you both for your thoughts on the market today. We really appreciate it. And if you're looking for other buying opportunities, Goldman Sachs says investors should look to the British stock market. Despite Brexit jitters and the FTSE 100 was lower today, it's down more than 14 percent this year. And it's no Goldman outlines 10 reasons to buy across the pond, including discounted stocks, particularly compared to U.S. valuations. They also say that impending U.K.-EU free trade deal will be a tailwind. You can read the other eight reasons at CNBC.com pro. Ahead here, the vaccine is almost here, but the money is not. States are calling for funding from D.C. as they prepare for the massive task of distribution, who's most in need, and who will get them the funds they need. Plus, what happens when hospitals start receiving the vaccine? We'll speak with the CEO of a New Jersey hospital that will be among the first recipients. And a big warning from Elon Musk to his employees about Tesla's stock price. It's all coming up on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
Welcome back to the exchange. Shares of Pfizer and BioNTech are higher after the authorization of their COVID vaccine in the UK. Vaccinations are set to start there next week. Meg Terrell is here now with details on how that country got a head start. Meg? They sure did, Kelly. I mean, this is a world first. The first COVID-19 vaccine being cleared by a government after completing phase three clinical trials. Uh, so as you said, these doses will start to go out in the UK next week. We're hearing about 800,000 doses in that first shipment. Uh, that's of a total 40 million that Pfizer and BioNTech have agreed to supply to the UK over this year uh, and next year. Now, Operation Warp Speed here in the US is holding a briefing right now. And Dr. Monsef Slawi, the chief advisor uh, to that effort, uh, was talking about this UK approval process, really saying this is a gold standard agency who reviewed this uh, and making a comment about how he hopes Americans will take this clearance. Here's what he said. They have not been part and involved in any of the politicization that uh, surrounded the development of this vaccine. And I hope this will be another evidence for uh, the American population that the data with these vaccines are clear, are transparent and demonstrate that they are effective and uh, uh, safe for use in the general population. Now, this comes more than a week before the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine is even going to be reviewed by outside advisors to the FDA. That meeting is scheduled for a week from tomorrow, December 10th. Uh, Moderna's meeting of that same group is scheduled for December 17th. It is expected the FDA could act pretty quickly after those meetings, potentially to give these the green light. If they do so, we are getting new numbers also just now from Operation Warp Speed on expected vaccine supply. Of these two different vaccines together, they now anticipate there will be enough to treat this many people. Remember, these are two-dose vaccines, but this is enough doses to treat 20 million people in December, uh, 30 million in January, and 50 million in February. Altogether, Kelly, that's 100 million people by the end of February who will receive both doses of their vaccination, according to Operation Warp Speed. And that really taking us through the most high-risk populations who are prioritized for this, Dr. Slowey saying, and noting that if we get good data from other manufacturers like Johnson & Johnson, for example, there could potentially be more supply, but that's just those two for right now, Kelly. Still, Meg, it stings a little that the UK is able to go ahead and approve the Pfizer vaccine eight days before our FDA is set to meet on it. Why is that? I mean, so if, if Slawi is saying, look, you know, there's, it's not like they're giving this process short shrift. He called them the gold standard and all of that. I mean, why are we still waiting? That is a question a lot of people are asking right now and, you know, that the White House appears to be asking FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn from these reports that he's been summoned to the White House uh, to talk about why the FDA's process is, is taking longer than other countries, or at least the UK's. Um, what we know is that the FDA goes through this incredibly carefully. They do their own analyses of all of the data that's made available to them, and then all of this will be made public next week in this meeting. We will get to see the briefing documents that all of these advisors are looking at and be able to see all of the safety and efficacy data ourselves. There's also very complicated information they go through about manufacturing. Um, so, of course, there are some uh, sort of insults being lobbed at the UK for going too quickly on this, particularly from their neighbors in Europe. Um, but also questions about why we can't go faster. Interesting. <laughs> They're always lobbing insults back and forth in Europe. But uh, this <laughs> reveals a lot about how each country goes about this process. Meg, thank you so much. Our Meg Terrell. Once our FDA does greenlight distribution in this country, states will face massive challenges to roll out the vaccine, including how to afford it, 
Elon Moy is here with that story for us. Elon? Well, Kelly, this is an unprecedented public health campaign, and it's coming at a time when state budgets are already under strain. First, there is the cost of just the logistics, like buying all those super cold freezers to store the vaccine. Then states have to build out the technology to track who's gotten a dose and make sure they come back for a second one. They need to market the vaccine to those who are eligible and reach out to those who are skeptical. And state health officials say the biggest cost of all will be hiring and training enough workers to actually administer the medication. It's all well and good to have a vaccine, but unless we can figure out a way to get it into people's arms, it's not doing what we need it to do. And in order to get it into people's arms, we need to recruit, hire, and properly reimburse a diverse array of vaccinators, pharmacists, physicians, EMTs, et cetera. All told, states estimate that they need $8.4 billion to cover those costs. And so far, Congress has only distributed $200 million. Now, there is growing momentum on Capitol Hill to try to get some of this money out. Just this morning, the number two Democrat in the House, Denny Hoyer, told reporters that vaccines don't do any good sitting in a box. They get a, got to get out to the public. And Kelly, he said that he is optimistic that lawmakers can strike a deal on another COVID relief package by the end of this weekend. Back to you. Fascinating. Elon, thank you uh, for that angle on this story, our Elon Moy. With a vaccine just around the corner, how are hospitals preparing to distribute it? And what financial and logistical challenges do they face? Joining me now is Michael Marin. He is president and CEO of Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, New Jersey. I understand that you are among the first vaccine recipients. Is that true? And if so, how did that happen? Well, it's supposed to be true. We haven't actually received the vaccine yet. Uh, so New Jersey as a whole is slated to get 130,000 uh, doses in this first tranche. Uh, the state will then decide how that gets allocated. So um, we're optimistic. Uh, we've done a lot to be in the front lines already and we're prepared for it, but we actually haven't received it yet. So I can't say with certainty that we will be first or how, how much vaccine we're actually going to receive. I'd like to ask you about the cost uh, of these vaccines because, you know, a colleague the other day told me that hospitals actually were telling their workers they couldn't administer the vaccine because they couldn't afford it. I mean, hospitals have been under huge financial pressure this year. They've had to delay, you know, discretionary treatments. Uh, COVID, of course, has uh, piled up tons and tons of costs that they haven't been able to deal with. I don't know if that's an idiosyncratic case or how is it that you understand uh, these vaccines will be paid for and how much are you uh, as a hospital going to have to pay for them? So uh, right now, our understanding, the cost of the drug itself and the kits that come with the drug, which are the PPE and the syringes, uh, are all going to be provided by the government, right? So it's no direct cost to us. We're not going to bill for it. We're going to we're going to start vaccinating people. The hospitals themselves actually already have the infrastructure. Uh, New Jersey is already prepared. They have a vaccine registry. Um, and so we're in a much better uh, shape than, than many other states in terms of having personnel who are trained saying we're going to use pharmacists, we're going to use medical assistants, we're going to use nurses where we can. The big chunk of our critical care nursing staff are already uh, involved with the uptick in, in cases that we've been seeing. But we don't need them to actually administer the, the vaccine. And so we have enough resources. And I think it's best that rather than duplicating effort, that we tap into the existing provider infrastructure that exists. And if we do that efficiently and effectively, it's not going to cost that much to actually administer. And they're all willing and everybody's very anxious 
they see the vaccine as, as being extremely helpful in, in getting us through this recent uptick. And so uh, I think you're going to find great enthusiasm on the healthcare providers' willingness to put in a little extra to make sure it happens. So once the hospital workers, the frontline workers themselves, receive these vaccinations, is the hospital system still going to be involved in distributing the COVID vaccine to everybody else in the future? I would hope so, uh, because you don't want to just give the vaccine and then and then have somebody unobserved for a period of time. You want to know who you gave it to. You want to track them, see any long-term uh, ramifications or side effects that occur. So I think it's very important that the, the hospitals be front and center. And I think even in the hospitals, very careful. So here, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the high-risk areas and the high-risk people in those areas. So I will not be one of the first ones personally receiving the vaccine, one, because I've already had the virus. So I have the antibodies. Two, I'm not in a high-risk area, right? I get to sit, I get to be in the administrative offices. But our ER staff, our ICU staff, critical care staff, those in the front lines, and those who then are on those front lines who have those comorbid conditions, who might be hypertensive, might have high, um, might right. have a, a weight issue. They're the ones who should get it first. So as you say, you, you hope that hospitals play a prominent role in, in vaccinating the rest of the population so they can uh, keep them under observation, that kind of thing, maybe just keep track of everything. I mean, my understanding as after reading about it in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend is that grocery stores could even play a role in distributing this vaccine. Certainly pharmacies, the likes of uh, the retail drug stores, and they're arguing that they're, they have the capacity and the space in their shop aisles uh, to keep everybody well apart and to be able to administer it to a big part of the population all at one time. Do you think that's ill-advised? Uh, I wouldn't call it ill-advised. It is not ideal. Um, and so there, you're, we're weighing two resources. So getting the injection in everybody's arm, they absolutely can be beneficial. But they're not going to be the ones tracking that individual over a period of 30, 60, 90, 180 days to make sure that, uh, that there are no side effects and that the people are tolerating the vaccine well. So I think no matter what, if you go there because it's faster and it's easier, that's fine. Convenience is a big factor. But you should absolutely follow up with your primary care physician. Let them know that you've had the vaccine. Let them know the minute if you do experience side effects or what they are. Uh, that's how we're going to learn. We have to remember this is a new vaccine, new science in how a vaccine is developed. Uh, and the, the studies are very promising and very robust. And everybody has a high degree of confidence that they're going to be successful but we're still pretty low on the learning curve. And so we should, uh, we should be prudent about how we go about following the individuals who get the vaccine. That's a good point about maybe uh, taking some initiative on the recipient's part, uh, keep, you know, keep the healthcare system informed about it. Michael, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Appreciate it very much. Michael Marin of Holy Name. Still ahead here, Airbnb should find a home in your portfolio, according to one analyst who puts an overweight on the stock before it even goes public. We'll discuss that call. Plus, what goes up must come down. One technician is here with a warning about the meteoric moves in vaccine stocks like Moderna. Moderna up another 4% today. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple.
Welcome back to the exchange. Dow was down 224 points at the lows today, but it rebounded to briefly turn positive, up 18 on some headlines about possible stimulus in Washington. We're down 26 right now. The S&P is eking out a less than one point gain. The Nasdaq's down 22. And in terms of sectors, it's energy, communication services, and healthcare that are leading the way. Materials and consumer staples are lagging today, so definitely a mixed bag. But energy is up 4%, and that's a solid mover. Here are some of the individual names moving this hour. Shares of Palantir are sharply lower on a downgrade to underweight from equal weight at Morgan Stanley. Uh, Morgan Stanley citing negative risk reward after the 150% share run-up uh, they've had since listing in September. Palantir is down 14%. Shares of Kohl's are higher on an upgrade at Deutsche Bank to buy from Hold. This on the new partnership between Kohl's and Sephora. Both CEOs joined us exclusively here on the exchange yesterday following that announcement. Kohl's adding 5%. And shares of Salesforce are sinking after they agreed to acquire Slack in a cash-in-stock deal at a roughly 50% premium to where Slack was previously trading. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff insisting to our Jim Cramer that Slack changes everything. Still, the shares are down more than 8% right now. And to see more of Jim's interview with Mark Benioff, go to CNBC.com. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Today, Georgia's Republican Secretary of State is blaming President Trump for, in effect, prompting threats against election workers. Even after this office request that President Trump try and quell the violent rhetoric being born out of his continuing claims of winning the states where he obviously lost, he tweeted out, expose the massive voter fraud in Georgia. This is exactly the kind of language that is at the base of growing threat environment for election workers who are simply doing their jobs. President-elect Biden has no plans to replace FBI Director Christopher Wray unless he is fired by President Trump before Inauguration Day. That is according to a senior Biden official quoted by the New York Times. And in Texas this morning, this is a Boeing 737 MAX jet taking off with journalists aboard, the first public demonstration flight by American Airlines as it tries to boost confidence in the plane now that it has been cleared to fly again after being grounded for almost two years. You are up to date. That's the news update, Kel. I'll send it back to you. Would you have any qualms about being one of those journalists? <laughs> You know, I, I don't know. I'm assuming that the FAA has done its due diligence, so I probably would get on it. I would probably do it. Yeah. Because I know, it's a great it story. Sort of sometimes, I, I know, it just sometimes makes you pause and go, all right, good for them. Uh, Sue, we'll check in with you next hour. We appreciate it. You got it. Sue Herrera back at headquarters. Coming up, it's the big box delivery wars. Airbnb getting its first outperform before it even goes public. Disney getting a new street high target as it looks to become the streaming king. All that and more coming up in just a couple of minutes. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, we welcome Julia Borston, Michael Santoli, and Deirdre Bosa. Good to have you all here. First up today, Elon Musk isn't mincing words in a company email obtained by CNBC. The Tesla CEO reiterated their need to keep costs under control. He wrote to Tesla workers, investors are giving us a lot of credit for future profitability. But if they conclude that's not going to happen, our stock will immediately get crushed like a souffle under a sledgehammer. 
The stock is at all-time highs and set to join the S&P 500 later this month. And by the way, Musk himself was also just named Fortune's Business Person of the Year today after he's leapfrog, uh, leapfrogged Bill Gates as the second richest person in the world. Mike, I wouldn't quibble with his choice as Business Person of the Year. I mean, the, right. he is incredible. The the quibble is with the stock price, and it's fascinating to see Musk himself weigh in on that. It is fascinating, this tone right here. It's prudent. It sounds like what a CEO, what a manager should be doing, saying don't get complacent. We've had an amazing run. Let's focus on the details. Let's get that profit per vehicle up, even if it's by $0.05, cent, $0.20, cent, $0.50 cent increments over time. The issue is it's probably not even true about the stock. I mean, it's not a half-trillion-dollar valuation because of those factors. The shareholder base right now is we're saving the world, and if that doesn't work out, we're going to Mars. And so um, it's not clear to me that it's even true <laughs> that if they come in a little short on margins, the stock gets pummeled. What do you think is the biggest risk factor for the stock? Like, what is the one tripwire here? Do we know? I don't think we really know. I really do think it's about, you know, maybe if something causes the fever to break in the general enthusiasm for these very long dated secular growth stories. Uh, obviously, if they do have hiccups in production, they're still consuming capital. They haven't plenty of it, of course, but they still have to expand capacity. So there are definitely hurdles that, that the company has to cross. Uh, and if there's any sign that there's market share issues in EVs. I think we're still so early, it's hard to really discern that. But those things, over time, right. would have wear and tear on the, on the stock. Yeah, the new Hummer, you know, looks pretty good. Deirdre, <laughs> what would you add? <laughs> um, I would add one thing that some analyst somewhere is writing down crush like a souffle under a sledgehammer as the title of a future note <laughs> aside from that. Um, it's interesting. Does it sound a little tone deaf? This is what I wonder. Elon Musk became the second richest person in the world this year. So he's telling his employees, you got to cut costs, pinch pennies wherever you can uh, so that we can you know, keep this run going. But I tend to agree with Mike there that this is what a good manager does, a good CEO does. You have to keep your eye on costs even when the stock is surging. What uh, many, That's many a, fold an interesting this year. point. All right. Now, Mike, I just got to ask you this one. Ironically, Musk is rich because the stock price is so high. Yes. So if he ever had to, like, personally keep funding the business to Deirdre's point about how it seems a little, you know, a little tone deaf, wouldn't he have to sell the stock? And then that would I mean, then the stock would drop me. I'm sure there are plenty oh. of other buyers, but it's not you know, he's not a liquid second richest person in the world. No, he's not liquid. I mean, no, none of them are. I mean, at this point, that's how you get, you know, you're, you're wealthy on paper only. Um, so I think we're so far from having to worry about that. He can peel off stock. By the way, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about how he's got margin debt against his holdings. He might actually be trapped by right. the stock price going down. I mean, we are so far in the money on that stock based compensation for this company is a billion and a half dollars on like 30 billion in revenue this year. Wow, that's impressive. All right, let's move along. Talk some Airbnb today. Uh, it's a buy even though you can't buy it yet, apparently. Atlantic Equities initiated its coverage on Airbnb with an overweight rating and a $75 price target, saying they have, quote, significant secular growth potential and a powerful brand setting them apart from competition. Airbnb is set to debut on the NASDAQ later this month, ticker ABNB. Atlantic also said the IPO, and this is what's interesting to me, Deirdre, couldn't have been any better timed. What do they mean by that? <laughs> um, I think 
basically they are talking about Airbnb's sheer resilience. I mean, they've wanted to go public for a number of years. They haven't. It was going to be earlier this year. Of course, they were hit really, really hard by the pandemic, but they have shown the company's resiliency. And one thing that note says that I would narrow in on is brand strength. And this is where Airbnb really excels. There was a line that I found one of the most interesting lines in that IPO prospectus that said they get something like 90% plus of their bookings directly or through unpaid channels. That is just stands in such stark contrast to the Expedia, the booking holdings of the world that have to rely on a search engine like Google that, you know, may eventually and is already competing with them. So when it comes to the home rental, the home sharing market, Airbnb um, is certainly the strongest brand and the other guys are just trying to catch up. Julia, what would you say? I would say not only is this a strong brand, but the timing is great, Kelly, because they saw a surge in users and many of them New users going to Airbnb to rent houses that were out of the city, out in rural areas. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see how they hold on to those users and they get them to stick around and book more. My family's an example. We went and rented a house on Airbnb because we just needed to get out of Los Angeles. I think this is a perfect opportunity for them to not only show that these are customers that are going to come back, but maybe see that it's a better alternative to hotels over the next year or so as people start having the option of returning back to hotels, Kelly. Julia, there's some nice places in Nevada, you know. <laughs> oh, there, there, are, there are a lot of places, Kelly, but what I think is really interesting here is that it's all about getting out of uh, getting out of those big cities. And the question is how many of those users that they saw during this pandemic were new users? And also, Kelly, have to point out, this is a company that cut 25% of its staff. So this is, you know, speaking of uh, showing that efficiency that Elon Musk was pointing to, this idea that they could cut their staff, they could focus on margins and can figure out how to operate even in these tough times, that resilience. That's a great point. It's like they've proven the right kind of maturity uh, to go public at this point. Uh, let's move along to Disney, which got a big boost today from Citigroup, a street high price target of $175 a share. They're talking about their direct-to-consumer business, which grew 41% last quarter. That includes Disney+, ESPN+, Hulu. City also expects parks to improve as, the, as we distribute the COVID vaccines. Disney expected to provide updates on both businesses at its investor date next week. Meanwhile, rival Discovery... Now it's getting into the streaming wars, launching its own Discovery Plus streaming service today. Julia, it is getting crowded out there. I mean, Discovery is a no-brainer to do this, but it is getting really crowded. It is getting crowded, but we just heard Discovery CEO Zaslav, uh, David Zaslav make his big pitch for Discovery Plus. And what he said is that in many ways, Discovery Plus is going to be similar to Disney Plus, very strong brands with a huge fan following. Also, Discovery Plus is partnering with Verizon for its launch, just as Disney did. But they say that these aren't going to really be competitors because the content is so different. Zaslav saying that Discovery is really complementary to what Disney is doing, to what Netflix is doing, because it's all about that real-life content, the reality TV, the home, and the cooking content, which are not the areas of strength of these other streaming services. And one other funny thing, Kelly, they said that while if you're watching a serious drama or a movie, you have to really be focusing on it, they say people like to watch Discovery in the background. That is kind of the companion yeah. for their day. And they think that people are going to be willing to pay for it right now. They could have it on in the background when they're cooking and stuck at home. Absolutely. I can vouch for that. I know people who watch it that way. So, Mike, it's going to be five bucks a month for Discovery Plus. Uh, we know how many different streaming options 
Disney has at this point. But again, what's going to rebundle all of this? Are we going to be permanently in a world of the consumer turning one service on and turning another off and trying to navigate? I mean, trying to use the remote control these days is getting overwhelming. I think it's already been rebundled in a virtual way by the Roku's of the world or Apple TV, whatever the interface you're using or a smart TV itself. And it's going to be it's, it's apps on your phone is the way to think about it, as opposed to I am now turning on the thing mm-hmm. called the TV and it has a bundle inside of it. So it's I think it's in process. It maybe is not going to be as neat and tidy and you're going to have a little more control to, to toggle around. So uh, it is fascinating. By the way, the, the Disney call, uh, the price target of 175, what's fascinating is how you get there. Uh, at that price target, it's 45% of the value of the business is the streaming uh, units. Uh, so that's wow. way up from now. It's not really contributing any uh, profits at all. And he's also basing it on fiscal 2023 earnings for the rest of the company. So you have to stretch a little bit if you're a traditional media analyst to make it work into this framework that's getting you like 16% upside from here. Yep, fair enough. Quick programming note, Discovery CEO David Zaslav will be on CNBC tomorrow. He'll be on Squawk Box at 8 a.m. to discuss the launch of Discovery Plus. You definitely don't want to miss it. Finally, COVID fatigue and extra savings from staying home have consumers leaning hard into holiday decor this year. The demand is especially high for real Christmas trees. The median price is up another 7% this year to 81 bucks, according to the NRF. We're up 23% from 2018 now. So cue the competition. Lowe's is now offering free tree delivery this year while rival Home Depot is beefing up its own holiday offerings. Shares of both stocks are up about 25% this year. Deirdre, would you trust Lowe's to pick out your tree? (laughs) Um, I would trust basically any service that's going to bring it to me and take it away, which is exactly what we are doing this year. My tree actually just arrived this morning. We got a real one. And actually, we this is another idea, but we rented it. So including all of the ornaments, we're not in our usual San Francisco home this holiday season. Um, so perhaps, you know, just to tie you this to the beginning, <laughs> Airbnb could have a Christmas tree uh, delivery service for all those people who got out over the holidays and now maybe want to go to Airbnb and have their own trees instead of a hotel. It's harder to get a tree into a hotel. You know, right? I, I thought my tree was sad. I think we can show what Kelly's tree looks like right now. It's, it, it's sitting on the dining room table because when you have a one and a two-year-old, I mean, it's just like, yeah, it's, the, the tag is still on. Uh, I did get this at Home Depot, Julia, um, but it meant, and it, you can't even tell how tilted it is in real life. But if, if they had said, this is my producer, Maria, okay, if I could call up Lowe's, wow. Julia, and say, yes, yeah, send me Maria's tree, okay, this is somebody, she's not going to Home Depot and Lowe's. That's an independent local gardener. What would the Borson household be doing? <laughs> Uh, look, I think there is really something about getting into the the nature of getting into a, a bunch of trees. It smells great getting to pick out a real tree. And I think this is going to be a really big year to shift people who are used to buying artificial trees or storing one in their basement to having the pleasure of a real tree. There's nothing like that smell in your living room. We are way behind uh, on this. Uh, Maria's tree is very impressive. But I think the key thing here is more than ever, people want to make their house feel nice and nothing like the smell of fur to do that. Michael, give you the last word to put a button on it all. Um, I, people aren't going to wait for the prices to go down, so they're going to have it sooner and more likely to get a real one. I just thought everybody went down to the avenue on the sidewalk in Manhattan and haggled with the guy, and they were always willing to bring it to the building. <laughs> so that's what we'll be doing. Oh, so. really? Yeah. See? It, exactly. They're way ahead of it. What's old is new again. Yeah. Uh, doesn't have quite the same, you know, it doesn't feel quite the same when it's like a, a guy from the Lowe's 10 miles away. <laughs> anyway. Thank you all. Uh, we'll see you for now. Julia Borston, Mike Santoli, and Deirdre Bosa for Rapid Fire today.
Still ahead, Moderna more than doubling over the past month. It's up about 118%. But one strategist has likened this rally to someone running up a snow-capped hill as fast as he can, only to slide back down again. He's going to talk about what he means by that in just a moment. But first, Boostocks found a bid on vaccine hopes. We're going to hear from the CEO of Molson Coors about this uh, as the shares leap 20% in a month. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back. Despite a slight drop in the past week, alcohol stocks have been catching a buzz over the past month on vaccine hopes. Budweiser maker AB InBev is up 25 percent. Molson Coors and Diageo up almost that much. Frank Holland joins me now with more. Frank. Hey there, Kelly. As you mentioned, alcohol stocks are actually down again today, but they far outperformed over the past month as vaccine news has increased confidence that sales will really rebound in 2021 after bar and restaurant sales were hit so hard by the pandemic. Global brewers and spirit makers like AB InBev, Constellation Brands, Diageo, and Molson Coors all gaining in the double digits. In just the past week, Morgan Stanley upgraded or increased the price target for Diageo, Pernar Ricard, and AB InBev saying the return to the pre-COVID path is not priced into these stocks. Deutsche Bank also upgrading Diageo and Pernar Ricard, the makers of Johnny Walker and Absolute Vodka, respectively. The CEO of Molson Coors says a vaccine would have a major impact on revenue and on margins because bars and restaurants generate higher sales of premium products. A vaccine in the marketplace will have the biggest impact in our European business and in particular in the UK business. 70 to 75 percent of our revenue is driven um, in the on-premise in the UK and about half of it is, is driven in our Central European business. 17% of our revenue in the, in the North American uh, business unit is driven by on-premise. And, you know, getting folk back out into sports events and fairs and festivals gives us the opportunity to sample some of our new innovations. And here in North America, about 20% of all beer and spirits are consumed at bars and restaurants and other venues. In Europe, it can be as high as 50%. Globally, it's just over a third Another factor generating a lot of investor confidence is the growth of online alcohol sales. They're forecasted to increase by more than 80% year over year here in the U.S. Kelly? And still a reminder, as we talk about all the reopening names in energy and financials, the beer stock should have been front and center. Frank, thank you so much, our Frank Holland. Shares of Moderna are skyrocketing this year of nearly 650% as they get closer to bringing their COVID vaccine to market. But those monster moves higher also come with monster drops along the way. We're going to dig into whether investors should sit out the vaccine volatility next. Welcome back. Shares of Moderna on the rebound today after its sell-off yesterday. It was also its largest trading volume day ever. More than 125 million shares change hands. That's six times its recent average. And my next guest says the stock's rally is becoming exhausted after yesterday's quote-unquote outside down day. For more, I'm joined by Matt Maley. He is the managing director and chief market strategist at Miller Tayback. Matt, it's good to have you. So what's setting off your alarm bells? Well, Kelly, yeah, two things. Number one, uh, you had this uh, stock got incredibly overbought after after its huge rally that you that you mentioned. Uh, you see, it's it's RSI, its relative strength index got the 90. 70 is considered overbought. So when it gets to 90, that's just really extremely overbought. But also, as you mentioned, this outside down day where a stock goes higher than its previous day's high, lower than its previous day's low, and closes below that previous day's low. You think that might happen a lot, but it actually doesn't happen very often. It just shows that people have just kind of you know, 
become exhausted. They, they, nobody left to buy, and the thing just drops. And it's kind of funny. I, I, I kind of use the, the example of saying somebody trying to ride, run up a ski slope in their ski boots. I mean, you run, run, run. If you run too fast, you get exhausted, you fall, and you slide back down a, a decent way. A decent amount, and then it takes you a while to regain your uh, your strength to, to uh, move back up. So I think that's a reason for the stock to uh, make it tough for it to bounce back in a big way. Yes. Yeah, so I guess the question is, you know, where does it go from here? Are there other vaccine stocks that you also think are just acting, you know, too frothy and too much like almost like a Bitcoin or a Tesla or you know the the kind of speculative these kinds of plays? Um, and does it matter for investors and for the rest of the public? I mean, does the fact that we're all looking to Moderna to have this incredible vaccine coming just kind of ignore the share price unless you're one of those uh, who might have bought in and what hopefully won't be the highs uh, in that case? Right. Yeah, there's definitely a concern. I mean, there's a difference between, sometimes there's a difference between a stock and a company. Uh, and, and sometimes there's a difference between the story behind the stock and the stock's price. And I think this case, in this case, that's what's happening with, with Moderna. I mean, you got to question politically, how much money can they, or Pfizer, whoever, uh, who has these vaccines, how much money can they make politically for themselves? They don't want to be seen as gouging people. And of course, uh, Washington, D.C. is not going to like it if they make too much of a profit on, on these drugs. But also remember that Merck, I mean, Merck, there's a smart people at Merck. They sold their entire position of Moderna recently, and the CEO of Pfizer sold 60% of his personal holdings. One thing I've learned in this business over 30 years is that when smart people sell, you, you take notice, you pay attention. And again, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the drug or the company, but the stock price has just gotten too far ahead of itself. We got to go, Matt, but do you have a downside price target in mind? Well, I'm thinking kind of 120, uh, but to be honest with you, it could fall always as, as low as 100 on a technical basis. That's what is old resistance level. That becomes its new support level. So below 20 start accumulating, and I think 100 would be its ultimate downside. But that's a lot further from, below from where it is right now. It is. It is. All right, Matt, thank you very much for joining us with that analysis today. Matt Melly of Miller Tayback on Moderna. Stick around. That does it for the exchange with Power Lunch is coming up next. And Gamco's Mario Gabelli will join us to talk about where he is seeing opportunities right now. Looking forward to that. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.